For the next 60 minutes, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of Pope Pius XII, King George VI, John Foster Dulles, Senator Kenneth Wherry, Lieutenant General Matthew Ridgway, King Carol of Romania, the Dean of Westminster, and more than 40 other people in the news. In the third performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every Friday night at this time. Let us build an impregnable ring of air power around Russia. You may imagine my feelings when early on Christmas morning of all days, the clerk of the works rushed into my bedroom and told me that the coronation stone had gone. Well, the things that I remember about David wouldn't do to tell. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real. They are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Here is the editor of Here It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. Christmas Eve at midnight in Chicago's LaSalle Street Station is one of the loneliest places in the world. The fantastic flow of travelers has been funneled out into the hotels and onto cots in the living rooms. Only a few stragglers remain. A silent Marine who can't get another train for Moline for three hours. A drunk who is having trouble reading a timetable. A cleaning woman not concentrating on her mop. Listening to the echo distorted canned organ trying to bring some little cheer into the abandoned depot. As it was in Chicago, so it was at Grand Central in Pennsylvania in New York. South Station in Boston, Union Station in Los Angeles. And so it would be on New Year's Eve. This last week of 1950 was a week of loneliness for a few and pitched excitement for the rest of the nation. It was a week of transition, which belonged neither to 1950 or 51. Sort of a link or pad of time between the two, when there was time only to celebrate or to weep, and the man you were calling was always out. At Lake Success, the drone of the peacemakers had been replaced by the sound of moving carts and workmen's tools as they prepared to move to new headquarters in New York. The Congress of the United States was all but in recess. There would be no history made there till the new session. And in the great offices in New York and Detroit and St. Louis, the production charts would wait until Tuesday. Even in Korea, there was transition and regrouping as new battle lines were forged and drawn and a few new faces in the line and some new names on the casualty lists. Muffled drums you hear come from another lonely terminal on Christmas. Haneda Airport in the suburbs of Tokyo. As an army air transport delivers one of the 1900 casualties of the 27th week of the Korean War. This is John Jefferson at Haneda Airport in Tokyo, Japan. 
The body of Lieutenant General Walton H. Walker, killed yesterday in a jeep accident north of Seoul, is to be brought here in a few minutes. A military honor guard is lined up across the ramp here at the front of the operations hut. A military band, General MacArthur, Admiral Joy, and British representatives have just arrived here on the field. The C-54 carrying General Walker's body, a plane of the troop carrier wing, United States Air Force, has just landed here. The color guard, honor guard, is at attention. It has moved up here, and a huge ramp is being prepared to move up to the door. 8,000 miles away from Haneda Airport, another C-54 idled and waited and opened its great door for another general. Lieutenant General Matthew Bunker Ridgway, who made history with the paratroopers of the 82nd Airborne Division, was at Washington Airport saying goodbye to his wife and General Bradley. Walton Harris Walker was dead, and Matt Ridgway was flying to take his place as commander of the 8th Army. And our microphone picked up his farewell. I think I have but one thought tonight, and that is to pay my tribute to the indomitable heart of the great leader whose sudden passing is a reason for my being here tonight, and to him and to his gallant command. On the Korean Peninsula, the fighting in the north was over, and the evacuation of Hung Nam, the biggest seaborne evacuation in modern history, had rescued 200,000 people and 17,500 vehicles, many of which had been landed at Pohang and were already back in the line. Admiral Doyle, who commanded the evacuation, said this. Everything went in exactly in accordance with plan. We had complete control of the situation at all times. We were not pushed off the beach. We came off exactly the way we wanted to do it. North of Seoul, where General MacArthur said a half a million Reds waited to attack, General Ridgway visited his new command, said he wanted to see their plans for attack, not for retreat, told Singman Rhee he was in Korea to stay. Premier Rhee evacuated the young and the aged, 5,000 a day, and told his people that Seoul would be defended. We will fight without complaining till victory is won. I say to the people of Seoul, therefore... Remain confident. You can be certain that your government will keep you informed of all fundamental news. I call upon all free nations, all nations who believe in the Charter of the United Nations, to close ranks behind us to stop this vicious Chinese communist aggression until freedom is ours. As Ridgway strove to build his line and weld the 10th Corps into his 8th Army, the Chinese and North Korean troops probed the line, seeking out the weak places. But for the most part, there was only minor patrol activity and watching and waiting. And in the interim between the evacuation at Hung Nam and the new stand, there was time to look back for just a moment on some of the men who had made it possible. Major Bill Wood tells how the evacuation looked. I'm Marine Corps Major William A. Wood. When we arrived off Hong Nam, which was about 8.50 in the morning, we were greeted by a tremendous spectacle of naval gunfire and carrier-based post-air support fringing the perimeter of the ground troops who were withdrawing at, to the port and re-embarking on vessels there while loading was going on. Between Hong Nam and Ham Hung, a town seven miles inland, there was almost a constant sheet of flames and explosions going on with smoke rising up. Most of it to 
result of napalm and rocket and strafing by our carrier close support aircraft. Some of the boys who came out ended up in hospitals. There, they heard a piano instead of the thunder of aircraft motors overhead. And they paid the tribute that foot soldiers always have for good close air support. They're doing a wonderful job as far as that close air support goes. I'll give them pilots my money anytime. I mean, they sure, sure the, the works. I mean, after all, if it wasn't for them, we would never have been out of that uh, trap, as we call it, Death Valley, the Marine Corps. And, I mean, they're doing a wonderful job as far as that close air support goes. Most of those pilots, both Marine and Air Force, flew three and four missions a day. Some were shot down. Here is the story of one who bailed out and lived to tell this fantastic story. Lieutenant Harold Kennison of Coalport, West Virginia. They started shooting at me while I was floating down. So consequently, I hit the ground with a terrific jar. It, maybe it knocked me out for a little bit because the 51s who flew cover for me reported I was lying on the ground for some time, not moving. Well, I, as soon as I could, I got out of the area because they were firing at me on the ground. As I proceeded as fast as I could, dragging my right leg, which I thought to be broken. It must have been about a company of enemy soldiers who were searching the area for me. Well, they thought they had me spotted, and they kept staring and hoping I'd move, but I was on my hands and knees and drawn up into a little ball with my head on the ground. One guard came so close to me, he walked down into the pines and within about 10 feet of me I guess because I had looked back over my head as I was lying flat and I could just see his left gloved hand he had a black glove on and see the rest of the end of a burp gun that he was carrying but I stayed in this position not daring to move from daylight until 4 o'clock when I spotted the helicopter coming in he was some distance to the south, but I knew that he could see my flare, so I, I made a break for it, ran through the pines and out into this open cornfield. And they were so, the enemy was so surprised at first, they only fired three or four shots. But I lit my flare on the way and set it up in the middle of the cornfield, and I dived for cover. After a few runs with a helicopter pilot, decided he'd set it down right there so when he got within 10 feet of the ground I made another break for it ran out into the cornfield and he came down real low and he boosted me up into the helicopter and we got out of the area as the men in the line above Seoul waited for the new storm intelligence teams worked far into the night trying to develop a pattern of the enemy's power and just what kind of soldier the man across the line was. Lieutenant Donald Eunice of Waycross, Georgia, the white commander of an all-Negro unit, which suffered heavy losses, told this story. Well, I was left there by my men and uh, unable to uh, move. I naturally lost, uh, I was unconscious, and sometime later I was given morphine or something of that nature by a Chinese and put into a slit trench where they covered me up and left me there. The 
drug that they gave me didn't make me comfortable to a certain extent. And I could hear other Chinese communists and other Americans in that vicinity. Most all night, I was uh, semi-conscious. And the next day, or either late that night, my organization did come back up. And I was picked up by two of the fellows from the organization and carried approximately seven miles to the foot of the hill. I had one of the best platoons that I've ever commanded, and I think most of my platoon, or it was in my platoon, I had some of the best soldiers that I've ever served with. They were wonderful fighting men, and all you have to do is to let them know that you're with them, and they're with you 100%. The staccato rifle-like sound you hear does not come from Korea or any place near the 38th parallel, but rather from the bank of a river near the 42nd parallel. And as a matter of fact, on the 42nd Street of Manhattan, where at the East River, a giant building of glass and marble has changed the New York skyline and the address of the United Nations. The hammering is the sound of scaffolding being torn off to reveal the smoothly gleaming interior of steel and glass and marble. This week... With Trigvalli in Norway and most of the delegates seeking a few days of escape from the depression of sweating out the Chinese communists on the ceasefire resolution, the General Assembly moved from Lake Success to its new home. This week, the roads and subway ramps going into the $100 million development were still in the paving state. Inside the 39-story Secretariat building, 21 high-speed elevators waited to carry the peacemakers to their appointed caves in the marble shaft. And the janitors for the world, along with the key makers, plasterers, and elevator operators, tried to set up housekeeping. We listened to some of the sounds of the first day. The low-rise elevator. The low-rise elevators go to the 15th floor. That's local to the 15th floor. The medium rise from the 15th to the 27th floor. I want to find out how I should get down to the third basement. You get down to the third basement by taking the second door to the right, right around the corner here. There is a sign on there that says, what paint use on the stairs? But the paint isn't wet at all. That sign should have been removed because we've all been going in and out of that door all morning. So I'm sure it's all right for you to go. Well, I do the marble work here. And uh, people ask me how to go to different floors. And I tell them to go down the colander. So they open the door. They go down the cellar or into the washroom or... Up to the firing scapes, how to get to different floors, and where's the Russians, and where's the Germans, and where's the Australians? <laughs> They're not used to the large building like this in other countries. We try to find every key and every lock in the place, which eventually we will have. But right now, there's so many people coming in, and everybody wants their keys yesterday. Nobody knows where they're going. It has been quite terrific all day. This morning, who was so confused, they really didn't know if they were going up or down. All they wanted to do was to get to the cafeteria to get their morning coffee. They were actually going batty. Sorry the truth. In this building, I would get lost because I just come here about uh, two weeks ago. It was behind a book titled, Shall We Have a Workable Peace? And insurance company statistics predict that 9,800 children will be born here on New Year's Day, including 105 sets of twins. Christmas night on the streets of Los Angeles was a credit to nobody. The judgment of this court that you will be sentenced to the county jail for the period of 30 days, and your operator's license is suspended for a period of 90 days. That was the actual voice of Eugene G. Fay, one of the core of Los Angeles and Hollywood judges 
who on Christmas Eve and day fined or sentenced 1,222 men and women for drunkenness within the boundaries of one of the nation's most beautifully landscaped communities. In the 65 hours around Christmas, there were 1,184 accidents, with 11 people killed and more than 900 injured. A worn and exhausted ambulance driver remembers the night. It was about the the worst night that we've had since about four years ago when 21 people were killed here. About half the people on the street for a couple of hours running through stop signs, paying no attention to the red or green light. And here are three victims who lived to tell of Christmas 1950 on the streets of Los Angeles. It was very terrifying to uh, see this automobile coming towards us, very helpless feeling. And after we crashed, uh, there were several thoughts went through our minds, one of them being that we were most happy that our tiny baby was not with us. Had we been going faster, we would no doubt have been killed instantly. As it was, the fellow who bumped into us was very dazed and confused from his drinking and thought he was on a one-way street. And uh, in his excitement, he began to sing hymns and... uh, the crowd they gathered was highly amused at this, and we felt a little ashamed. At 16th and Main Street, as we were driving along, crossing on the green light, talking, all of a sudden a great crash took place, and we flew through the air. The boys that seen it, two men, which we have their names, said the young man that was driving the car that caused the trouble had run four red lights after sideswiping a couple of cars that were parked. They were trying to force him to the curbstone. He come blazing through the fifth red light and hit my car, seemingly knocking me into another car. Then he bounced off of me and hit the other car. All three cars disabled. He with no insurance. On New Year's Eve, we will probably mix enough alcohol and gasoline to kill even more people. The city of Knoxville, Tennessee, almost within the shadows of the great atom plant at Oak Ridge, had a cops and robbers hero all its own. Schoolteacher Mrs. C. Brown Tate, who was held up on her way home from school by a gunman who had just shot his wife. And he wanted Mrs. Tate's vehicle for a getaway car. The Tennessee schoolmarm saved the car, the wounded wife, and a man's soul, and told this story. Then he pulled the gun out of his pocket, and I immediately got out of the car and told him that I could tell he was in trouble, and I thought perhaps rather than to take the car and get into more trouble, I might help him to get out of what trouble he was in. And then was when he told me that he had just shot his wife. So I talked with him a while about the possibility of being hunted down and that I felt his, he had an honest face and was not a, a crook at heart and that I wanted him to go to the police and give himself up, that I thought it would be much better. And we talked about God and that uh, we hoped that we prayed to God that his wife would not die. He thought his wife was dead then. So we drove on in on Cumberland Avenue, and he asked me to stop somewhere where there was a telephone and go in and call the hospital and see if his wife was alive, which I did. I forgot to tell you that he gave me his gun of his own accord, and I asked him to unload it, 
which he did, and I took the gun and the bullets before we got into my car and started into town. So I didn't feel frightened at any time. I felt a great sadness for the boy because I felt that he had an honest face and was not a killer at heart. In the meantime, I had to come back to the high to the junior high school and pick up my child and two of her little friends and bring them back down to the intersection at Kingston Pike. The music is from a small cafe called the Mesquita in Lisbon, Portugal. No longer the neutral crossroads of the warring powers as in other wars, but nevertheless a refuge for political exiles, fugitives, and of kings without kingdoms. CBS correspondent David Schoenbrunn was passing through Lisbon and ran across former King Carol of Romania. Sir, I wonder if you would permit a personal question. Could you tell us how you, what your private life is like, uh, how a king living in, in exile passes his time? I read a lot. I write. Music has always been a great refuge for me during hard days and a permanent joy. I look after our garden. I practice sports, golf, tennis. I go out shooting when the occasion is given to me. Not far from Lisbon, there was rejoicing in Madrid. Francisco Franco's Spain would soon have an ambassador in Washington, and the President of the United States was sending Stanton Griffiths to Madrid. In Rome, the Holy Year, which had brought hundreds of thousands of the faithful to the Vatican, was drawing to a close, and Pope Pius XII, in workman's garments, took brick and mortar to seal again the ancient holy door to the Basilica of St. Peter's. We place this in first stone to close this holy door, which should be opened each holy year. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. In the United States, the churches were jammed on Christmas Day. And as the people sat and prayed and waited and made New Year's resolutions and anxiously wondered just what mobilization was going to mean to them as individuals, they heard confused talk of price fixing and wage freezes. And they heard at least one congressman suggest that the nation's capital be moved to Independence, Missouri or Denver, Colorado or some other city. Jess Larson, whose job it is to study any such dispersal for the government and the president, reached these conclusions. Certainly we are in favor of dispersing the essential functions of the federal government. Those activities required to keep the government running continuously in any emergency. Disperse those into nearby Maryland and Virginia. But dispersal close by is one thing. Scattering the government all over creation is an entirely different matter, and we're not for that. Government means people. People who have to be in touch with each other, the president, the Congress, and government agencies. Scattering a government can lead to disaster. That's exactly what happened in the case of France in the last war. And another thing, you just don't overlook the long-time traditions of this democracy of ours. This has been our capital for 150 years. And you've got to keep the main seat of government here, right here in Washington. In Washington, the newsboys are men. 
And on the corner of busy 13th and East Streets, a one news dealer gave his opinion on leaving Washington. Well, I don't see of any reason why we should show we are scared of the atomic bomb. I'm not as scared of it. If they move it away from here, the capital, as you call, and move it somewhere else, they could come there as well as they could come here. It's no reason in the world why we should move the capital. I think it's a lot of hooey. News dealer Joe Beasley sells newspapers to cabinet members and congressmen and a lot of other people. He sells a long list of newspapers, all the Washington papers, the New York papers, and those from Chicago. If the papers were changing the opinions of their readers, no one could say for certain. News dealer Beasley and his readers were generally bewildered. But the foreign press seemed to gain fodder from all this. Don Hollenbeck reports on the press and the enemy. They read a number of our newspapers inside the Kremlin, and they find them quite useful. By a judicious culling from some of our journals, the Russian propagandists are able to do a highly efficient job of selling their case to the Russian people and to anyone else who will listen or read. An Associated Press dispatch from Moscow the other day said this, The Russian people are being given the impression of a strong wave of American opinion turning away from worldwide military and economic commitments toward a stand the Soviet Union has propounded all along the withdrawal of American troops from Asia and Europe. How is that impression being spread? It is being spread by the careful reprinting and broadcasting of articles from the American press. And in recent days, Moscow's editors haven't had to look very hard for original material because they've found plenty in the American press to bolster their line. They began by printing and broadcasting detailed summaries of accounts of the recent remarks by former Ambassador Joseph Kennedy... Remarks demanding that the United States withdraw from Korea and from Europe and Asia generally. More to the point, Moscow used some carefully selected editorial approval by the Hearst newspapers to convey the impression that Kennedy was expressing a view widely held in this country. With Herbert Hoover's recent Gibraltar speech, the Russian editors had a field day. Pravda printed the complete text of it, which is something Pravda just doesn't do for anybody much but Joseph Stalin... And it was curious to find the Chicago Tribune and Pravda unanimous in giving their blessing to the Hoover speech. Another sample or two. The Moscow Literary Gazette quotes Hearst as recommending that the Americans withdraw from Korea and from the United Nations in order to launch a more serious preparation of future aggression. A TASS item quotes the Hearst Press as demanding that Americans quit Korea and the United Nations. The Christian Science Monitor is quoted to show the setback American foreign policy has taken. The Moscow Radio quotes the Hearst and Scripps Howard Press as naming Atchison, Great Britain, and the United Nations as the main culprits. In the Chicago Daily News, the Russians found an account tending to show the people of the United States want to return to isolationism. Walter Lippmann is quoted as pointing out the necessity of transferring American troops from Korea to Japan. And so on. There is no such thing as a local press or a local broadcast anymore. The world has become a whispering gallery, and what is printed or said in any part of it may be used the next day as material by both our friends and our enemies. That was Don Hollenbeck reporting on American newspapers and how they read them behind the Iron Curtain. All right, men, gather around. Have a seat. Sit down. Make yourself at ease. First of all, for you fellows, a new man, you've probably seen me only a couple of times, I'm Sergeant Roy J. Richards, First Sergeant of Company L, 167th Infantry Regiment. 31st Division. You're going to be seeing a lot of me from now on. Out across the country, the call to the colors was in many states past the paper stage. 
In Alabama and Mississippi, the 31st Infantry Division of the National Guard was preparing for active duty. You were in an armory in Birmingham, Alabama. This weapon is a U.S. rifle, caliber 30 M1. It's the best weapon of any man's army. Sergeant, how far will that gun shoot? Uh, now, uh, this is not called a gun. We'll get this straight to begin with. It's a rifle. Now you're out in Minneapolis. The distinguished Viking Division, the 47th, prepares. As its boys from Minnesota and nearby North Dakota get ready to give up their jobs and leave their homes. Well, men, this is it. I believe you know that. You've all been alerted. And the 16th of January, you will be inducted into the armed services. Our problem from here on in is to prepare ourselves as quickly as possible for the job that we have cut out for us. It is possible that both of these National Guard divisions will form part of General Eisenhower's new army in Europe. We asked our Berlin correspondent, Dick Hotelet, to ask a few soldiers from Alabama, Mississippi, and Minnesota if the boys in Germany had any word of advice to the men of the 31st and the 47th. Private First Class Joe Tivador of Biloxi, Mississippi, aged 18, sent this advice. Germany is a very different place from Mississippi. Boys from home will get to see a lot of hills and mountains. I've never seen so many hills in all my life. And you've got to keep climbing them. You hardly finish getting over one, then you've got to st get started up the next one. I'm PFC Ernest Averill. I am 23 years old. I'm from International Falls, Minnesota. I've been in Germany for just over two years. First with the 18th Infantry of the 1st Division in Bavaria, and now with the 6th Infantry Regiment in Berlin. I didn't have much trouble getting used to things here, and I don't think anybody from Minnesota ought to find it hard to settle down. One thing the new outfits will find when they get to Germany is a real warm welcome from those of us already here. We're pretty thin on ground here, and it's a big place to defend. We're not worried about it, but we're glad to have all the company we can get. One thing the new divisions may hear are the propaganda records, which the loudspeakers in the red sector send shouting into the western sector of Berlin. This song is by Hans Eisler. The chorus says, Go home, Americans. Listen. Lass in Ruhe den deutschen Strom, denn für deinen Way of Life kriegst du uns ja doch nicht reif. Gruß von Lorchen, Bon Plaisir, der Kamm bleibt hier. In Berlin and in Korea, wherever Yanks are stationed on New Year's Day, our troops will be listening to shortwave reports of all the bowl games. And from Pasadena, California, they will perhaps hear the voice of Rose Bowl Marshal Corporal Robert S. Gray, a Korean veteran who will take the place of the scheduled Marshal Ike Eisenhower, now preparing for his new job in Europe. General Eisenhower's supernumerary, Corporal Gray in Pasadena. I was so doggone surprised when it all happened that I'm still going around the dither. I feel it's a great honor to be able to take General Eisenhower's place. He's a great man, and all the men in the armed forces look up to him with respect. Also out at the Rose Bowl is CBS's Red Barber, who will do the play-by-play -play on the big game. We asked Mr. Barber to give us his nomination for the year's biggest story in the world of sports. Here it is. 
There were the usual number of games won and the same number of games lost in 1950. And even now, before the year finally dies, we can't remember too well just who did win what and by what score. Yet there was one person in 1950 who won an event, and while in time we'll get the place and the date of it confused, we won't forget the story behind the trim, quiet, determined Ben Hogan. Ben Hogan was top man of the golfers when early in 1949 he was badly broken in an automobile wreck. At first his life was despaired of. Then it was diagnosed that he wouldn't walk again and certainly would never play golf again. The idea of him returning to professional golf was utterly fantastic. In addition to his broken bones, Hogan had to have his main vein tied off to prevent blood clots and so had to rebuild a new circulatory system from his waist down. But Hogan never quit on himself. He forced himself to do more and more with each passing day. He sat up in bed ten times. He stood by the bed ten times. He walked a few steps ten times. Then around the house ten times. Then around the block ten times. He putted on the rug at home. He did exercises. He drove himself to recover. And each day he drove harder. In January, he appeared from nowhere and tied Sneed in the Los Angeles Open. But worn out and fatigued, he lost the playoff. He rested a few weeks and went back to work day after day. He won the National Open this summer, the one tournament everybody said he couldn't win because of the 36-hole test the final day. They said that he couldn't stand that much golf in one day, but he did. Doctors tell you that a patient in bed from a broken back, from spastic involvements, from polio, from war wounds, from any of the real crippling conditions, more than anything else needs the spiritual medicine of confidence and assurance that despite the long pull and the slow recovery, they will get out of bed and back into life. Hogan showed them a human can do it. We have today hospitals filled with the crippled and the maimed, and more are being filled with their painful intake from Korea. Hogan didn't just win the National Open. He opened the doors of faith to thousands who need just that knowledge and that determination to get back into the game of living. Ben Hogan, then, is my story of the best in sports in 1950. And it's a story that will remain bright and remembered and useful where it can do some good. That was Red Barber with his choice of the best sports story of the year. Now, let's pick up a thread from last week's Hear It Now. Listen. Sergeant Pete Blaine, Abilene, Texas. Uh, squad leader, last squad out. I'm Sergeant Gerald A. Hanson of Arkansas City, Kansas. A platoon guide of the last platoon out. PFC Edward F. Liddy, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I was a rifleman in the last squad out. PFC Ray Renfro. Pikeville, Kentucky, machine gunner in the last squad out. PFC David C. Gaskin, Lexington, South Carolina, farmer in the last squad out. Corporal John A. Lighter, Niagara Falls, New York, fire team leader of the first last squad out. PFC Glenn Allen Castor, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, machine gunner, last squad. Those were the last men out of the Changin Reservoir. We heard their voices and the controlled emotion in them. Voices which had not yet changed a man's estate when World War II began. Heroes from Abilene and Philadelphia and Arkansas City and Lexland, South Carolina. Heroes, except that there were so many of them. And they were processed so young, so quickly. And moved from Pusan to Seoul and onto the reservoir and back to Hungnam and back to Pusan. That there was no time to look at them as a group. To examine them and say, these are the men of our generation. It is to these men, in the words of Carl Sandburg, to whom we are beholden. We listened to that roll of names again and chose one at random. 
as a sort of symbol of the youngsters who were fighting for freedom on foreign soil. So we went down to Lykesland, South Carolina, to ask the family and friends of Private First Class David C. Gaskin to tell us what breed of man David was, and from what kind of stock there emerged this American fighting man, Model 1950. David is our youngest child of eight children, and he has five sisters and two brothers. That's Mrs. T.P. Gaskin, David's mother. David was uh, always right obedient, and he would always tell, never told me he wouldn't do anything, even though he didn't always do the things. He would just forget them, I think. Lakesland is just about in the center of South Carolina, 14 miles from Columbia, a tiny junction in a large state. You get there by car or bus by traveling along Route 76. And when you get there, you find that the population of David Gaskin's hometown is exactly 76. Most of the citizens of Lakesland work the sandy soil, which yields a reasonable amount of truck farm produce. David's father keeps bees. Well, David went with me to one of the bee yards, and when the bees got after him, why, he ran and uh, ran around on the other side of the car and crawled under it. And while he was under the car, why, he seemed to have gotten in to something else that uh, would sting, too, that is wash. And uh, another time, uh, he bought him a new rifle, and uh, I went out to try the rifle with him, and because I... Beat him shooting with his own rifle while his mother got after him about uh, letting me beat him and when I just had one eye. And he says, yes, but that's Daddy's shooting eye. David Gaskin was 11 years old on Pearl Harbor Day. Used to ride his bike to school every day with his dog Shep on the handlebars. Mrs. E.B. Revere remembers David from the fourth grade in grammar school. I remember David Gaskin as a pupil of grammar school age. He was always dependable and trustworthy. Each assigned task was promptly performed, and he possesses a mind capable of superior work. He was a stocky little fellow and soon learned independence. Teacher Revere's stocky little pupil joined the Marines in August of 1948 after a year at the State University, went in with the 1st Marines, and had his shooting eye working from Masan to Seoul to the Chanjin Reservoir, swam his way into the Korean capital. His sister, Mildred Moak, remembers how he learned to like the water. I know David was always afraid of water until uh, he went to college. He never would go swimming with us and anything, so when he went to the university, well, he uh, took swimming lessons, and he learned to swim up there, and he liked it so well after he learned how to swim that he just kept on swimming until he finally got to where he could outswim his instructor. <laughs> and um, I think when he wrote us when he was over in, uh, he was one of the first Marines to get go into Seoul, uh, he swam the river, he swam under the water to get into Seoul, so it's a good thing he learned to swim. <laughs> the Gaskin family read in the papers of the success of the 1st Marine Division. David was suddenly a big man in Lakesland. Well, the things that I remember about David wouldn't do to tell. And as the family read of fighting above the 38th parallel and of the cold, hard winter in the north, they, like other soldiers' kin, wondered whether their boy was getting enough to eat. When David was growing up, when he was small, why, we couldn't hardly get him to eat enough. 
And he remained that way for several years. He wasn't that way after he grew up, honey, because he always wants his bacon and eggs the first thing when he gets home now from the service. And David's six-year-old sister wondered whether he got his fruitcake. David, has he got your fruitcake? David Gaskin had no regular girl when he left, but occasionally writes to Lena Bloom, sister of one of his Marine Corps buddies. David's rifle would not shoot, so he was beating chinks in the head with it. He said that it made a good baseball bat. To Lexland, Hung Nam and David are a long way off. And the reality of frozen ground and frostbite and ambush and the world of Singman Rhee and Mount Zetung and Jacob Malik and Warren Austin and Lake Success are still further away from the 76 people of this tiny hamlet. They who sent so much to Korea have not made up their minds yet whether or not they agree with the speechmakers who say, get out of Asia, or those who say, put more into Asia. In time, they will make up their minds on that one, too. They believe that America's cause in Korea will have God's blessing. Just as they are certain that their boy walked and fought out to Hong Nam, because in the words of David Gaskin's Baptist preacher, Mr. Jennings, he had faith. We believe very definitely that the faith which he embraced here and the faith which he has there is a faith that will carry him through. When we learned of the escape recently, we had special prayers. Now recall the prayer of thanksgiving that was given for David. We do not know what has happened to PFC David Gaskin or whether he got his fruitcake. We presume him to be safe. We do not know what bargain with destiny will be struck by the 76 inhabitants of Lykesland and the thousands of other Lykeslands in this generous and capacious land. But we are rather confident that our strength will be measured, our course determined, by the David Gaskins and the Lykeslands of this land. Back in 1917, Woodrow Wilson, whose birthday we celebrated yesterday, put it this way. As I think of the life of this great nation, it seems to me that we sometimes look to the wrong places for its sources. We look to the noisy places where men are talking in the marketplace. We look to where men are expressing their individual opinions. We look to where partisans are expressing passion instead of trying to attune our ears to that voiceless mass of men who merely go about their daily tasks, try to be honorable, try to serve the people they love, try to live worthy of the communities to which they belong. These are the breath of the nation's nostrils. These are the sinews of its might. Perhaps Mr. Wilson was thinking of the Gaskins and the Lykeslands. Sergeant Pete Bland, Abilene, Texas, uh, squad leader, last squad out. I'm Sergeant Gerald A. Hanson of Arkansas City, Kansas, a platoon guide of the last platoon out. PFC Ray Renfro, Pikeville, Kentucky, machine gunner in the last squad out. PFC David C. Gaskin, Lexington, South Carolina, Parliament, last squad out. You have just heard the third program in the new CBS series, Hear It Now. All the voices and sounds heard were real and were broadcast as they were recorded. 
Next week's program will feature the voices of the new Congress and an on-the-spot report from Ellis Island, one of the few gateways to freedom still left on this planet, along with all the other sounds and voices that will make next week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly with active assistance from Edmund Scott and Irving Gitlin. Combat recordings were done in Korea by George Herman and John Jefferson and by Armed Forces Radio Teams. Other portions of the broadcast originated in New York City and at WTOP Washington, WBT Charlotte, North Carolina, WBBM Chicago, WNOX Knoxville, KCBS San Francisco, KNX Los Angeles, WAPI Birmingham, WCCO Minneapolis, WWL New Orleans, KMBC Kansas City, WEEI Boston, and the British Broadcasting Corporation. The Lexland story was covered by Jack Nell. Edward R. Murrow can be heard each weekday evening at 7.45 over most of these CBS stations. Warren Sweeney speaking. This is CBS. Celebrate the holiday season with the shows on the Columbia Broadcasting System.